Once again, welcome. Welcome, everyone. And tonight, I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, there was a woman by the name of Kisa Gotumi, and she had, she gave birth to this beautiful child. And one day, tragically, the child died. And Kisa Gotumi was so stricken with grief that she lost her mind. She was walking around with her dead child, kind of carrying it with her, begging people saying, please give me the medicine that will bring back my child, to bring my child back to life. And as she continued to beg people in this way, finally someone said to her, shared with her, Kiso go to me, I, I suggest you go to the Buddha. He, he will have, I'm sure he will have the medicine that you need. And so of course she goes, she goes to the Buddha and begs him, please, please venerable sir, give me the medicine to bring my child back to life. And then the Buddha replied, he said, oh, I, I see your situation. And this is what I'm gonna have you do is to go to the village and just get one mustard seed from a house that has not experienced death. So of course, Kisa Gotomi feels, you know, elated, like there's a possibility. And she did, as he said. So she comes, she comes to the first house and she asks, please, I need just one mustard seed from a house that has not experienced death in order to bring my child back to life. And they, and they reply, they say, of course we would give you a mustard seed to help you, but unfortunately our uncle died just a few months ago. And then again to a second house, please, I need a mustard seed from a house that has not experienced death in order to bring my child back to life. Can you help me in the second house? Again, a similar answer. Of course, we would want to help you and give you a mustard seed to help you. But unfortunately, our mother died here four years ago. And again, to the third house, please, please give me a mustard seed from, from a house that has not experienced death in order to bring my child back to life. Oh, of course, we would give you a mustard seed to help you. But unfortunately, just like you, a child also died just a few weeks ago in our family. And on and on it went in this way. And as Kisa Gotami continued to go from house to house and continued to receive the same response, she began to deeply realize, oh, this is the way it is for everyone. Right? This realization, loss, is woven into the tapestry of our human lives. This is what it is to be a human being, to have these threads woven into our human experience. And it was at this point she went back to the Buddha, kind of back in to her body, not out of her mind. And when she went back to the Buddha, he asked, did you get the mustard seed from the house, not touched by death? death? Go to me. 
And she said, finished, venerable sir, is the matter of the mustard seed. You have indeed restored my heart. And at that point, the Buddha and Kisa Gotami sat down and cried together of the loss of her child. They grieved together while being held by the Dhamma, being held by the Dharma. I find this a striking story and how it illuminates this simple yet important realization, right? That loss is woven into the tapestry of our, our human lives and what's needed like Kisa Gotomi for me to fully embody that and to learn how to navigate it. Because I'm sure all of you here, right? All of you here have experienced experience probably so many losses and so many different kinds of losses. This is the human situation to experience this. Everyone's impacted by this, by loss. And as I said, not to, not to just intellectually understand it, to visceral, viscerally understand it, to understand it as it sometimes said, through my bones, through my heart. And, and I, I want to say, you know, for me, it, it, to free this heart, it, it, it's not like I'm, I'm trying to get to a place where I don't grieve, but rather to grieve in a way that I'm not overwhelmed. Because what I want to share or propose this evening is that uh, grieving's not the, the, the problem, it's, it's how my mind's relating to it. Am I being overwhelmed? Am I lost in it? Am I disconnected in some way? And instead of being overwhelmed by it, I think there's this possibility to grieve in a way that I'm still held by the Dharma. I'm still situated in my practice of the Dharma. And, and I wanna acknowledge, you know, truly, you know, the last piece of the sto story was added by this other uh, teacher, Sylvia Borstein in her rendition. The piece of the story where the Buddha and Kisa Gotami sat down and cried together about the loss of her child, being grieving together while being held by the Dharma. This, this image is important to me, this image of the Buddha actually crying and Kisa Gotami crying, tears gently rolling down their faces, expressing how their hearts were touched and deeply moved by the loss of this precious child. Not disconnected, sensitive, moved and touched by loss. Because for me, and I, I wanna say it might be different for you, but for me through this path and this practice, I, I discover, I think through, through my study and also through my own practice, I discover a Buddha that grieves. Yes, grieves with a heart that's free, a heart that's sensitive and open to the whole realm of emotional feelings that arise with loss. Yet not getting lost in blind reactivity around the loss or being in, in contention with it or disconnected from it. To hear this theme I'm trying to offer that to, to grieve in a way that's, that's open-hearted and not entangled in a way that's lost in some kind of reactivity.
And I think this is what part of what Dharma practice has given me is the opportunities, at least at times, is not to be as overwhelmed by grief, to, to metabolize it, to learn something from it, to grow from it, to be connected with it. And, and I think what I've noticed is it opens up an important dimension of what it is to live a human life, namely contacting and seeing that there's a place for my heart to be broken. Because it's true, have you noticed that there is heartbreak when I truly open to this evanescent world. My heart breaks open. And what comes with that is sometimes feeling the pain, not always the pain or the poignancy or the love or the complications that come with loss, that come with grieving. So what are some examples? I wanna, I wanna give you some examples of such grief that, that hopefully I, I can offer you at least some hints, some beginning flavors of grieving that, that might be connected with a free heart rather than a, a heart that's, that's entangled. And also a, a kind of grieving that has an onward leading quality to it. You know, and one, one example of this is, uh, uh, some of you have heard of this uh, from me recently. This has been a, a theme that I've been really curious about. But there's a, a place in these early texts, these early discourses, where the Buddha finds out that uh, his two chief disciples, his kind of these, some of his two of his closest uh, companions on the path, uh, Venerable Mahamogalana and, and Venerable Sariputta had died relatively close to one another. And he's in front of this assembly of monastics, you know, so hundreds of monastics there. And, and, and he says an interesting phrase. He says, you know, as I look out onto this assembly, it, it feels as if the room is empty now that Mahamogalana and Venerable Sariputta are no longer with us. And what strikes me about that, that comment is that it's not a factual statement. The assembly hall is filled with monastics, and yet it feels empty. Do you know that experience? Like, I don't know if you've ever had this, like in, in the home that you're in, especially in buildings, I've noticed this, where, where everything's kind of the same, but it's like the room feels empty because that being, that person, that pet is gone. You know what I'm talking about? To me, that's a description of, of the emotional quality, one of the emotional flavors that comes with grief. And he gives this other uh, image in that, you know, he says, you know, it's, it's like a, a very large tree standing and two of the largest branches fall off. Again, this this to me more of an emotional description of what it's like to lose friends that are close to one. And I imagine, because I, I find it so helpful to tell you the truth, is, is the, the tears of loss rolling down his face, expressing his connection with these dear companions. And then there's another interesting passage. It doesn't always have to do with kind of human beings or even other animals, but even places. 
So for example, uh, as in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the Buddha knows he's going to be dying very soon. And he's in a town called uh, Vesali, which for him uh, is such a pleasant and beautiful uh, place, uh, often because of the shrines that are there. And he's in Vesali with his attendant, his cousin Ananda, and they're be just about to, to leave uh, Vesali. And in that moment, the Buddha turns around. It said that he turns around like an elephant, which I think is interesting. You know, when you have four legs on the ground instead of two, it takes a little maneuvering to turn all the way around. And to me, it expresses the sense that he's turning around to fully take in this scenery, the view of Vesely. And he comments, you know, Ananda, this, this will be the last time that I behold Vesely. Again, I find that striking and I, I find for myself, I imagine there must have been tears that come with such loss. Here he is to take time of looking upon the city that has touched his heart, to allow it in and then to turn around and to go forward on his journey, knowing that he'll never see this place that it's been so beautiful to him. I feel like there is a place to feel lost, to open to it with these, these, especially these aspects of our experience that have touched our hearts in some kind of way. And, and as I've been saying, you know, it's, it's been powerful me, for me to imagine a Buddha who has tears gently rolling down his face in these scenarios because of how vital it's been for me to learn to be deeply moved by this world I live in, rather than being disconnected or overwhelmed. And I don't know if you've had this experience, it might just be because of the circles I've been in, but sometimes the way Buddhist teachings have been conveyed to me, I have been left with a feeling that the, the Buddha doesn't feel anymore, he isn't moved, as if that's what awakening is, is to no longer feel or to have a heart that's sensitive. Yet I don't think that that's what this path is about, is becoming a person without emotion. And when I imagine a Buddha who cries, it, it helps, it can help disrupt the conditioning, you know, often a, a cultural conditioning that men shouldn't cry, which you do find in a number of cultures and often in some Buddhist cultures, to, to help disrupt any kind of straitjacket of the kinds of emotion of, of beings that we should be. And also, I, I wanna be clear, like when I speak of tears in these ways, I, I wanna be clear that I'm not trying to prescribe to all of you of what grief should look like for each and every one of, one of us. You know, this idea of like, you must cry or you must cry at certain times and places. Probably all of us here tonight, right? we, we all have different ways of navigating loss. And maybe for some of you, it's lots of tears. Maybe 
For others, it's no tears. Maybe for some of you, it's having tears only around others or only by oneself. And I want to point out all of that is okay. Like we get to navigate loss in our own peculiar and idiosyncratic ways. There's, as I said, there's not one way of being an emotional being. And I think this is important because maybe if you're like me, sometimes I can look around or we can look around of what kind of emotional being should I be? So here are some examples. We have a, a Buddha who's he's moved by loss, who grieves, at least the way I'm using this word, with a free heart. And, and it's interesting because there's another passage where we can see where there's this is contrasted with another way of experiencing loss. And this is um, around Ananda, his attendance experience of the death of Sariputta. So when Ananda hears that the Venerable Sariputta has uh, passed away, it's interesting how he describes the experience. He says, my body seems as if it's been drugged. I have become disoriented. The teachings are no longer clear to me. That's a very different description of going through loss than, than what I shared with you about the Buddha. There's a sense of disorientation there, a sense of disconnection that I hear in Ananda's words. A loss of what it means to be connected with the Dharma, to be practicing the Dharma in the midst of a difficult emotion. So to me, this is the kind of uh, uh, thing that, that, that I would say is, is not a, a kind of grieving that comes from a free heart. So it's having this vision or aspiration, at least for me, to be with emotion in a way that I'm not complicating that world of emotion or blindly reacting to emotions in a way that I end up the worse for it. And again, I, I don't think it means that grief won't be messy, but rather a vision of allowing grief to be onward leading. And, and I do want to acknowledge, you know, it can be confusing because, for example, with the first story I gave with you of the Buddha around the death of Sariputta and Mahamogalana, it is true later on in that very same story, the Buddha says, and I do not grieve and I do not so sorrow. And there's uh, the two words for grieve or sorrow or uh, soka parideva. Those are the two words in a different conjugation. And soka, at least in, in, in Vedic times, meant a burning grief, a different kind of grief. So I think those words are pointing to more of what Ananda was experiencing rather than what the Buddha was experiencing. And yet it can be confusing because the same word is, is being used. The reason I'm, I'm going on about this distinction is, is because for myself, in my experiences of grief, it's like I can feel when my heart feels freer in the midst of that. And it feels, and also when it feels more hooked or overwhelmed or trapped. And, and maybe you've noticed this. Grief has different flavors. And at times it feels like my, 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 my heart's in contention with it, and at times it's not. So there's one example of this, and I can't remember where, where I share these things. 
so here in Flagstaff, with the these fires that we had towards the beginning of the the summer, the the tunnel fire and the pipeline fire, there was a part of um, the forest, actually a small part of a small wilderness area that got burned down, which was a place that uh, my partner and I were going now for a number of years to do a uh, retreat. It was such a deep loss for me, given this really this deep relationship I had with very specific trees and other plants and flora in that area. And it, it felt like the loss of an intimate partner, an intimate lover, to have that land burned down. And I think the other reason is because it was the first time of having a, a very particular flavor of a deeply intimate relationship with a very specific wilderness areas, with specific and personal relationships with certain trees and rock formations that really formed over the years while I was on retreat. So yeah, it was painful in the sense of the heart being broken in some manner and touching and poignant, not just painful. And, and the experience, yeah, it was compounded by systemic dynamics of the climate crisis. And what was interesting to me is that in the intensity of it, there were times where I could notice, oh, wow, I am so hooked. I am so overwhelmed by this. And then, then it was like a spectrum where there would be at other times where there was simply being deeply moved, impacted by such a, a loss. My heart being broken open, but in a way that actually felt onward leading in my life. And this is the, one of the questions I invite you to hold. Can you start to get a sense of these different flavors of how your heart navigates loss? Because it's going to happen, it probably is happening in some way or another, just in our group here, to notice the different flavors. When is your heart simply there? And I'm not saying that it's going to be like a pleasant or easy experience, but you might notice that you're more okay with it at times and less okay at other times. And in the midst of that, at times, what I want to uh, kind of also propose is that in this heartbreak, this kind of grief, it, it does have this potential in some strange way to deepen our lives, for it to be onward leading in some strange way, to inform how I live my life, how I show up. Bell Hooks in her book all about love, new visions. In that she's speaking about suffering, but I want to interchange the word suffering with loss because I think it fits so well with what I want to point to. So I'm just changing that one word in this quote from Bell Hooks. She says, contrary to what we may have been taught to think, unnecessary and unchosen loss wounds us, but need not scar us for life. It does mark us. What we allow the mark of our losses to become is in our own hands. Isn't that striking? 
right? Contrary to what we may have been taught to think, unnecessary and unchosen, uh, unchosen losses wounds us, wound us, but need not scar us for life. They do mark us. What we allow the mark of our losses to become is in our own hands. So I ask you, what will end up becoming of the marks or imprints of the losses that you've experienced? Because Bell Hooks is proposing, this is in your own hands. What will become of them? How to transform them so that those marks of those losses become the marks of wisdom and compassion become the marks of love. I feel like I can hear that thread in the story about Kisa Gotome. Right? The, the, the compassion she must have had for others who have lost a child, that deep loss of a mother losing a child. Because it can feel so unnatural to, le- to lose a child because it feels unnatural that I should be the one who dies before my child. And such a close connection, right? The, the understanding that she got from that and that she'd gone through this journey, discovering a way of holding and opening to such a loss. You know, it's, as the story goes, she became fully ordained after that. And then finally her heart fully released, awakened. And you see this with with other practitioners, you know, just using Bell Hooks's language, you know, this this experience of unnecessary and unchosen losses that, yeah, feel and sound so wounding, and yet they, they get transformed when they're in the hands at least in this context of a practitioner. For example, Deepa Ma, many of you know of Deepa Ma. She was a, a Bengali woman who was just this extraordinary practitioner, one of the kind of extraordinary practitioners of the 20th century in the Theravada tradition. And in some ways, her life was so much like more so than Kisa Gotami. You know, it, at 18 year, years old, uh, she lost her mother unexpectedly. And then I think it was her first child she lost when the child was three months of age. She had a daughter. And then after her daughter, she lost another child and her husband directly after that. It devastated her. And it was also the immensity of the grief that brought her to practice, that allowed her practice to open in a, in a, in a really profound way. And I think there's other ways that loss can touch us. That's onward leading. So for me, uh, the suicide of a childhood friend, it, it's so interesting how that loss in my life continues to inform day after day how I am in the world. Like I, it's like my heart carries this in a way where I carry him forward in a way. 
in a way that changes this heart here. It doesn't change the tragedy of that loss. I want to be clear about that. Rather, with Dharma practice, it marks my heart differently. It marks it with wisdom and compassion, with more dimensionality. It marks it with love. And I just have to imagine this with the Buddha. You hear now how I relate to these texts. I, I feel that there's a place for this imagining to bring it to a fullness. Because it said that Maya, the Buddha's birth mother, died when, was he, when he was only seven days old, seven days after he was born. The Buddha's birth mother died. And right, this, this deep connection, visceral bodily connection, then just after birth, gone. And yes, thankfully, and so wonderfully, the, the Buddha was raised by his aunt, his mother's sister, Mahapajapati. But even for, you know, a, a newly born child, I, you know, for me, grief, grief and loss, loss is such a bodily felt experience. It feels like my body carries it along. And I can only imagine how this might have informed his desire to practice, his desire to deepen his way of being in the world, to find freedom for the heart. Not to, in, in some ways, take away the tragedy of that, but to be marked by it in a different way that, that opens wisdom and compassion, that, that opens love. So how to navigate loss, how to navigate the heartbreak that sometimes comes with loss. So that the marks of your losses become the marks of wisdom and compassion, become the marks of love. And, and I do want to say, like, th that navigation is a journey in itself happening within a vast and varied landscape of the many different losses that probably all of us here are going to experience as human beings. And I also want to acknowledge the, the complexity of this, to, to navigate, skillfully navigate, and to open and even accept loss. Yeah, it's important for this, this path and this practice. And I want to acknowledge that some losses are also entangled with dynamics that we're not here to condone, condone, such as systemic racism or acts of harm. So loss can be complicated when there's those elements too that I wanna name and acknowledge. So, so how to navigate, or at least to begin this conversation, not to end it. And there's a, a poem by Mary Oliver entitled Heavy that I, I think partially points to this. She says, the beginning of this poem, the time I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying, I went closer and I did not die. Surely God had his hands in this as well as friends. Still I was bent and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. 
Then said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief. It's on the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep wave, a love to which there is no reply. It's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it. How do you embrace grief? How do you balance it? How do you carry it? That's our practice, isn't it? Our Dharma practice. To embrace it. For me, not to necessarily wallow in it, but rather to learn to skillfully open to be with that whole tapestry of emotion that can come with the experience of loss. Sometimes the deep pain of it, sometimes the poignancy of it, sometimes the bitter sweetness of it. Sometimes there's even joy or gratitude interwoven. Even the elements of relief or the element of disbelief. To balance it, what supports me through this? Is it my meditation? Is it my spiritual friends? Is it chanting? What carries me through? And what's the beauty right beside or sometimes intertwined with that loss? And to carry it. How can grief inform my way of being in the world as I was sharing before? so that the marks of those losses become the marks of wisdom and compassion become the marks of love. So may our inevitable experience of loss in our human lives, may it be touched by the practice of the Dharma so that we can bring forward these marks of wisdom and compassion, these marks of love for the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.